Jesus died so we can live. Is that not incredible truth this morning? Jesus died so we can live. This is, if I had to sum up uh, Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3 where we're at together today, this is it. Jesus died. Why did he die? So we can live. And so we're going to look at Colossians 2 and 3 this morning and different passages in there to, to look at what does it look like? Why did Jesus die? And how did Jesus die? And what does that mean? And then how do we live in light of Jesus's death. And so I'm going to read uh, the first verses in, well, not in chapter 2, but the ones that we'll read today, right in the middle of chapter 2 in verse 13. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of your sins. I, I want to go back to that first part again. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. I don't know about you, but I woke up breathing today. Anybody else? Some of you are asleep. Let's wake you up. But you're hopefully alive. And so why does, why does Paul say you're dead? It's an interesting word to describe people like you and I who are alive. And so I wonder, maybe another letter that Paul wrote, this time to a church in Ephesus, would help us to understand, what is he talking about here? And this is what he says in Ephesians 2 verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. I always joke that the two words that a baby learns, the first two words are usually mama and no. <laughs> and I have four kids in my house, seven, five, three, and one. And let me tell you, I never had to teach my child to say no. How about you? Did you ever have to teach your child or grandchild to say no? It is in them. It's innate in them. You don't have to teach it. Yesterday, we were at the counter uh, um, hanging out, and my three-year-old, Eden, was getting into it with my five-year-old, Micah, and they just were fighting over this little toy. And I looked at Eden and I said, you better not do that. And she looked right at me and she looked right back at her brother and she scratched him right in the face. <laughs> and I said, I told you to say no. And you could almost see this smile on her face like, so what? <laughs> she was disobedient. I didn't have to teach her that. I can tell her no. And she oftentimes says no, but it is in her. And it causes some issues with brothers and sisters, mom and dad, and for themselves. But the same is true with us and God. No one taught us that we had to say no to him. No one had to say, hey, when you want to live your own life, just say no to God and, and this is how you do that. No one does that. When we are born, not only how do we learn to say no to our parents and no to everybody else, we learn to say no to God. And in our nature, what Paul says, our sinful nature we say no to God and always yes to ourselves. We're selfish. We want to lead our own lives. We don't want God to have a say in our lives. We want to have the final say. And this is disobedience, saying no to God in his way. And that's why Paul says it's our sinful nature. Now, when I look at the following verses from here, it says that God then, even though we're dead, he made us alive with Christ and he forgave all of our sins. Now, the word dead here, going back just for a moment, the word dead literally means in this verse that you and I cannot respond to the life 
God wants for us. Because our spiritual side is dead, we have said no to God, we're disobedient, he's cut us off from life with him. We can't have a relationship with him. It's literally dead inside. Someone has to wake us up inside, our spirit. And that's why Paul says, God, though you were dead because of your disobedience, he made you alive with Christ. Now, if he put a period there, we could keep moving, but he doesn't. He puts a comma. For he forgave all of our sins. Now, how does he do that? Well, he keeps going. He canceled the record of the charges against us, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And so here's Jesus coming, and he sees a people who have said no to God. And he could say, you know what? You figure it out on your own. You've said no to God all of your life. You've cut yourself off from life with God. You try to figure out how to do life. But thankfully, he doesn't do that. Jesus steps in. Now, here's the interesting part of the word or the phrase, record of the charges. Here's what Paul has in mind when he says this. He says the, the Greek phrase, record of charges, in verse 14 is analogous to an IOU signed by hand and obligating the signer to repay the debt. Paul's idea seems to be that the sins of mankind had piled up a list of IOUs so large that they could never be repaid. Many of us signed an IOU when we uh, closed on our house, and we've been paying off uh, that for a long time to our bank, and we're paying it off, and hopefully someday for me, some, some of you have done this, you paid off your bank statement. You're, you own your house for free. Well, not free. You paid for it, but it's thankfully the bank doesn't own it anymore. But what he's saying here is, look, we have this IOU that's piled up to God, that we have all of our sins that have piled up, and someone has to pay for it. But we can't. It's too big. It's too much. And it's the thing about sin, too. It isn't just sins of commission, which means the sins that we actually commit. It's also the sins of omission, things that we don't even know we do, things that come with this sinful nature, things that come because we've cut ourselves off from Jesus. It's piled up so big. You can't write checks to pay it off. It is always going to be against you. There's this record of charges that somebody must pay. You know what's incredible about God? He doesn't say you have this huge list of IOUs piled up against you, and someone needs to pay it, so you should try to figure it out. Do you know what the essence of religion is? The essence of religion is we try to pay and pay and pay and pay by doing the right thing, and yet we still can't pay off the charges. That's why so many of us get so frustrated with God, because we think we have to be good, so the scales weigh out in our favor, and we can't do enough. Somebody must take this dead spirit inside of us and breathe life into it. Someone must be able to take this huge charge against us, the, all of these IOUs piled up, and be able to pay it so we can have a relationship with God. Now here's the incredible 
grace of Jesus. Watch this. The theological dictionary of the New Testament says this. When a criminal was crucified, the charges against him were written down and nailed to the cross. So when a criminal is crucified, if he were to do something really bad, obviously he did something bad to go to the cross, they would write it and they would nail it above him. The debt, or our record of charges, it's impossible for us to pay, but God dealt with it. He had blotted it out and canceled the bond by nailing it to the cross. This is a vivid way of saying that because Christ was nailed to the cross, our debt has been completely forgiven. How incredible is this? Somebody has to pay the record of charges or we can't have a relationship with God. And when Jesus is on the cross, they wrote above him the charges against him. But it wasn't Jesus' charges. In fact, the Father was the one who wrote above Jesus the charges, and the charges were our charges, our record of wrongs, the things that we have done, and we nailed it to an innocent criminal's cross. And because of that, all of the IOUs that were supposed to be paid by you and me, Jesus took it and he signed it off. And when he says, it is finished on the cross, the payment is paid. Are you awake this morning? <laughs> I mean, everything that we've done, the record of charges, is nailed to Jesus so we can live. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes we like, oh, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. No, Jesus died on the cross to pay the record of charges so we who've been disobedient from the beginning of our lives can have a new relationship with him. That's why Jesus died. So... You and I can live. I gotta be honest with you. I think sometimes we know that Jesus dies for us, but we just, we just get so used to it. Come on. We should never get used to that kind of grace. A God who could have just written us off, but instead he wrote our charges against him and nailed it to the cross so that we who are dead can be made alive in him. I want to live my life alive in him. Don't you? The problem, though, we don't always do that. This old life that's been buried with Christ, he disarms the powers of it, but sometimes we ourselves give power back to it. And to be able to really start living this new life, we have to do something ourselves. Jesus dies on the cross, but we're not passive we have a say. We have a responsibility to do something about it. So it's interesting. After Paul starts writing about what it means for Jesus to die and starts to get to why we should live in light of Jesus' death, he says something about our thoughts. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life, and your real life 
is hidden with Christ in God. There was, I don't remember the name of um, the company, but they came out with a slogan that said, you are what you eat. <laughs> and there's truth to that. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, famous psychologist, said, you are what you think. And it's true. It's interesting that when Paul says, Jesus died for your old way of life, you need to now live in light of your new life. The first thing that he says is, start thinking differently. How many of you this morning are like me? The first thoughts that you had waking up, at least when they got a little bit clearer after a cup of coffee, <laughs> were about you, about your well-being, about your plans today, about how you look, how you feel. Probably all of us. And we've been conditioned from the beginning in our old way of life to always think about ourselves. And the way we think leads to the way we act. And that's why many of us have lived a life that we're not proud of because it's been born in the sinful nature that starts here, the way we think. And Paul says, if we are to live in this new life, if we are to live in light of Christ's death, we have to change the way we think. And instead of thinking about ourselves and being consumed with ourselves all the time that leads to actions that we're not proud of, he says you have to set your sights on Jesus, the realities of heaven where Christ sits. You need to think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. And here's the thing, guys. This, these two, these two um, statements here are commands. They're not saying, hey, whenever you feel like it, you should set your sights on Jesus, especially when you're at church. <laughs> or when you're just reading the Bible, when you're praying, think about Jesus, and then when you go on your day, think about whatever you want. No, this is a command. Paul is literally saying, if you want to live the new life, you must, must, must continue thinking about Jesus. Because the more you think about Jesus, the more you will live like Jesus. But it has to start with a heavenly perspective. My question to you this morning is, where is your mind today? If it's consumed with the old way of life, which many of our minds still are, or we go back there, look at how your life is. If we set our eyes on Christ it would be amazing to know and think how our lives really could be because we are what we think. And that's why Paul is saying, listen, if you don't do this every single moment of every single day, not just on Sundays, not when you're reading the Bible, not just when you're praying, but every day, if your focus isn't Christ and the new life he has for you, you will go backwards. Watch. He says, right after this, put to death the sinful earthly things still lurking within you. Yes, Jesus died for our old life, but we can still give it power. We can still give power to our old way of life. And he says, listen, there's these things still lurking within you. You must do something about it. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, Lust and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person 
is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these things, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now it's time. Time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. For the next few moments, I'm not going to talk. I'm going, to put, I'm going to put this verse on. I'm going to go back and forth a couple times. I'm going to let you read it. And what I want you to do is, as you look in you and you see these things still lurking within you, still part of your old life, what are the things that you would say, wow, because I'm still thinking only about myself and selfishly, I'm still me-centered, these things continue to wreak havoc in my life. And so just take a few moments privately between you and the Lord to read these lists, I'll go back and forth, and what are the one or two things or eight things that you see that are still at play in your life? I think the things that stick out to me in these verses that really prick my spirit when it says have nothing to do with. Not once in a while you're going to give in to these things. Or, hey, we all make mistakes. No big deal. Have nothing to do with this old life. The old life, these are the things that characterized your life. Now is to get rid of these things. Not, well, I'm feeling this way, so this is just how it works. I mean, Jesus says, out of the heart the mouth speaks. These are the things right now, if you're dealing with these things, both of these lists, we are still giving power to the old life. We're putting our old life on like a comfortable pair of shoes. (laughs) I have that pair of shoes that no matter what pair of shoes that I have, I like to put those on because they're comfortable. But it's interesting, at the end of the day, my back hurts. (laughs) We put these things on and we don't realize it, but at the end of the day, it leads to some damage. If I were to be transparent with you, there's a few of these on here that I really struggle with and I would say the two have to be The first two in verse 8, anger and rage. I think of all the things that I call the old Eric oftentimes digs up from the grave, this grave that Jesus died with all my old life. When I go back with the shovel and dig up the old Eric and give it power, it usually manifests itself in anger and rage. I've been a really bad husband this past week. I can't tell you some of the things that have come out of my mouth that I've said to my wife. And it's so funny. When I've done that, I go back to these verses, and I've been thinking about how have I been thinking. Have I been thinking of Jesus? Because I am how I think. Have I been thinking of Christ or have I been thinking about me? And when I want to start justifying myself and I want to make sure that 
I'm okay, and I start being consumed with me, it comes out for me in anger and rage. So I say things to my wife that are just absolutely horrible, that should never, ever come out of my mouth, but because old Eric has been dug up from the grave, it does. And most importantly, I would say I can see it, I take it out of my kids. I used to think that living with a seven, five, three, and one-year-old justified my anger, <laughs> Like I said yesterday, Eden scratched Micah. That was the tipping point of a lot of other things that happened yesterday and the weeks before that. And I used to think, well, I have little kids. This is just how a dad acts. But not when we are living with the new life. These things will come up, yes, but they can't be the pattern of our lives. And if any of these things are a pattern in your life, you've given it power again. The same power that Jesus disarmed it from on the cross, you've given it power again in your life. And what N.T. Wright is about to say is one of the most bluntest things that I think we should hear this morning. And here's what happens. If you don't kill these things, they will kill you. If we don't, as, as Paul says to me, put it off. Take off of these things. We do that by keeping our eyes on Christ, and then we look at the things around. We have to take it off. If we don't take these things off of our lives, or if we don't kill them, they will kill you. Not physically, though they could. Some of us in this room, if we went back to our old way of life, physically we're harming our bodies, it could literally physically kill you. But more importantly, it kills our intimacy with God and it kills our relationships. I can't tell you how many times I've lost it on my kids. Angry, not justified, just brutal anger and rage. And you start to see the tears stream down their face. And at that moment, I've killed the intimacy with my son or daughter that I should have with them. And you can judge me if you want. I'm just being honest and real. This is what happens in my life. And for some of us in this room, we're killing relationships. We're killing our intimacy with the Lord. We're killing our own souls because we keep going back to our old way of life. We have to change the way we think. People say, how do you do this? You have to literally change the way you think. Every single moment, of every single day, you look at your old life and you have to say, this is not me anymore. I am now in Christ. I have a new life. And now that I'm in this new life, my life should look like this. I'm putting on the new nature. He says, put on the new nature and be renewed I love this. How do you do this? As you learn to know your creator and become like him. When you put these on and you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will become like Jesus. How cool is that? And in this life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. It doesn't matter because Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. The power to live like Christ is in you. 
The same power that wants to depowerize, that's not the right word, but go with it, to remove the power of your old life and keep it in the ground is the same power that lives in us. And if you're saying, I just keep going back to the old life, it's not Jesus, it's us. We have to change our perspective, put it on Christ and, and, and capitalize on the power that lives in us. And then our lives should look like this. Since God chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. You must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Wouldn't you love to live this kind of life? A life that when people interact with you, they are receiving your humility and your tender mercy and your kindness and your patience. You're the first one to forgive, first one to love. We can live this way if we don't give our old lives power. But how do you do it? I am not a golfer anymore. <laughs> but this is one of my uh, fairway woods. If you're a golfer, it's a three wood here. And I took golfing lessons when I was a kid. And I, my predominant sport was baseball, okay? And so obviously to, to swing a baseball, you hold a baseball bat like this. Well, I just thought you just hold a golf club like this too. <laughs> and I would, I would do okay when I would swing the golf club. And my aunt was gracious enough to pay for golf lessons for me. And my dream was to be Jack Nicholas. I'm a pastor now, so obviously that didn't work out too well. But... I, I go there, and the instructor says, let me see your grip. And I said, here you go. And he goes, oh, oh, boy. And I said, what? He goes, you got to change your grip. I'm like, what do you mean change my grip? I'm hitting the ball pretty well. He goes, you want to hit it further and better? You want your scores to go down? I said, well, yeah, that's why I'm here. He goes, then change your grip. And so he takes these fingers right here, and he interlocks them. And then he says, you need to bring your grips over like this so you can have tightness of the club and start to swing it well. I was so used to swinging it like this that I literally, when, I would, when he wasn't looking, I would just go back to this. <laughs> it was comfortable. But he would come over and he's like, you're never going to get better if you, don't, if you don't change your grip. I said, it is so uncomfortable to do this. He goes, exactly. But over time, it won't be uncomfortable. It'll be your new normal. He goes, just keep trying it. So then I changed the grip and I started to swing the club. And all of a sudden, it's interesting my scores started to go down, and the ball started to go faster and longer, and I got to use my putter quicker than I would have otherwise. And it's all because I changed my grip. And yes, it was uncomfortable at first. However, at the end, it became my new golf swing. When Paul says you have to put on your new nature, what he is saying is for so long you've lived like this, it's time to go with a new grip. Every single day when you wake up, you have to get used to this new grip. You have to grip it correctly. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to feel weird because you've been so used to living life your own way and living life the old way that we described up there, that to, to grip it like this, to put on these characteristics, to clothe yourself with these characteristics, it's going to be uncomfortable at first. But over time, when you become like Christ, your grip becomes the new normal. And this 
becomes the new normal. And the power in you goes from giving it to your old way to now allowing Christ to allow you to live the new way. And as a result of that, we can live with all of these things, including these five characteristics that I just want to look at real quickly with you, what our lives should look like. We live with tenderhearted mercy, which means having compassion, especially for those in need. Jesus saw people in need, and he said they, have, they are like a sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? He became their shepherd. He did something about the needs that he saw. So we must have tenderhearted mercy, doing something for those who are in need, having compassion on them. The second word is kindness. David Garland says, kindness is a gracious sensitivity towards others that is triggered by genuine care for them. You and I are in relationships with people. We know people who are just talking to you because they have to, and others of, other people that just genuinely care about you. They, they care about the little things about you. Don't you love being around those kinds of people? You can become this person when we change our grip and we put this on every single day. We're supposed to live with humility. We're thinking of others as better than yourselves, not equal, better. So when we wake up in the morning, our thoughts are about others in our lives, not about ourselves. We live a life of gentleness. Jesus depicted himself as one considered of other persons and their concerns and never demanded his own way. The other way we do this is manipulation, where you care about somebody in order to get your way. Jesus cared about people, and at the end of the day, guess what? He cared about people. It was never about an agenda for him. We have to be gentle with people, not demanding our own way. And finally, ooh, this is tough. <laughs> patience. Look how Andrew Lincoln describes patience. The ability to not become frustrated and enraged. Hmm, I should probably learn more about that. But to make allowances for others' shortcomings and to tolerate exasperating behavior. That's what it means to be patient. Those people in your life that cause you so much frustration because they're so exasperating, those are the people that you extend grace to. Why? Because God extends grace to us who are exasperating maybe to him. So we need our lives to look this way. We put it on every single day as we take off the old life. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at some next steps with you, whether you're new to the chapel or even new to faith, whether you're just beginning your faith journey right now, whether you're growing in your faith journey and you've been walking with Jesus for a while now, or, boy, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you need to influence other people, okay? So I'm going to give you three images to describe what your next step should be in light of living new life with him. One, listen, we said this last week, we're going to keep saying it's baptism. If you are new in your faith or whether you've been following Jesus for 30 years, if you've not been baptized, guess what? You need to make it happen. There is no greater uh, example of you saying to everybody, my old life is buried with Jesus in the water and now I live new in him. That's what baptism's all about proclaiming that you're living with a new grip, so to speak. You need to be baptized. We have a class next week. I want to see people at this class. It is time, if you follow Jesus, wherever you're at in that circle, you need to be baptized. The second one is, this is for students, what I love. We have two 
new, or to a retreat, but for all our middle school and high school. So high school retreats, the 8th through the 10th, middle schoolers are the 15th to the 17th. If you're a middle schooler or a high schooler here, or you know them, this is such a great way for them to understand that they need to live with a new grip, that they need to put on the new characteristics of Christ to understand that God is making them into Christ. We want to see our students at this retreat to help them understand the importance of that. And then finally, I love this. If you, are, if, you've know, if you know Jesus, whether you're new or you're an influencer, this is for you. 2020 short-term mission teams. This, this is in your welcome program today. All of our short-term mission trips, whether you're a middle schooler or a, or a high schooler or you're an adult, whether you want to go to Cuba or Pittsburgh, Burundi, Mexico, Kenya, so many opportunities for you to live in light of your new life with him. We have to change our grips. We have to allow the power of Jesus to disarm the power of our old life so we can accept his power to live in the new one. But we're not passive. If you want to let go and let God, that doesn't, that doesn't count. You need to grip onto God so we can grip our new life in him.